Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi all, this is Erica Zambello, your guest host this week at National Parks Traveler. It was certainly an interesting week across the national park system. Long-term monitoring has revealed that nitrogen plays a critical role in coral bleaching across the world, especially in southern Florida. The good news? We can reduce the nitrogen flowing to our coastal waters by improving our stormwater, sewer, and agricultural systems. In a bit of backcountry irony, a lightning strike led to a fire that burned down the historic Mount Holmes Fire Lookout in Yellowstone National Park. That 7.1 magnitude earthquake that shook California earlier this month reached out across Nevada, too, and sent shutters through Devil's Hole at Death Valley National Park. In this week's show, I talked with Jamina Garland-Lewis, a photographer, eco-health researcher, and National Geographic explorer about her work in the parks and how that has changed how she experiences the parks themselves. Next, Kurt visits Shudik Peninsula, a quieter side of the national park system. Finally, we end with Walnut Canyon and Montezuma Castle National Monuments, which are easy day trips from Flagstaff that open windows into past cultures. Parks Traveler podcast listeners. This is Erica Zambello talking to you from Northwest Florida. And today we are speaking with Jamina Garland-Lewis. She is a photographer, an eco-health researcher, and National Geographic explorer. Right now she's in Seattle, but she crisscrosses the country and crisscrosses the world looking for different environmental stories. And we actually first worked together on a Fox story taking place in the Channel Islands. And so when I think about people who are covering national parks, she is one of the the reporters, the writers, the multimedia storytellers uh, who immediately come to mind. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Erica. So you're essentially a modern day explorer. So what is your day-to-day life like right now? Day-to-day life is an interesting concept. Um, (laughs) uh, At the moment, it has meant a lot of time in front of a computer, uh, catching up on uh, work that I've just been doing. I've just been working in Alaska for a month, and so sort of catching up, going through images, um, thinking about potential stories, uh, catching up on old projects. So there's been a lot of time uh, in front of a computer these days, which is always the, the balance with being out on, on expedition, uh, covering a story, and then and coming back. And um, so there's that boom and bust with, <laughs> with being out in the field and then uh, sitting at home in your computer. And now it's, now it's more of the computer day to day. Yeah, sometimes I go out and take pictures for like an hour, and then it takes 10 hours on the computer to go through all the images and edit them all. So yeah, I think people forget the back end of all the work that you have to do. Yes, it's it's hidden often on in our pajamas and in our houses. And so it's not it's not quite uh, the visible side of the, the modern day explorer world. So how did you become interested in the outdoors? You know, was your family into camping and hiking and things like that? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I was really fortunate to grow up in the outdoors. Um, I was born in a rural farm in southwestern Wisconsin, um, and my parents couldn't stand the winters. So we would hop in the car um, when I was a baby and spend months on the road every winter, come down to the southwest and just camp and backpack and explore uh, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, going to northern Mexico and Baja every year. And ended up moving to New Mexico when I was two and a half. And so I grew up in the Southwest. And um, so I'm a desert rat at heart, but um, always every trip that I did with my my parents was outdoors. It was always camping and um, always being out in Canyon country or in the mountains and just fell in love with it from a really young age and was fortunate to have that exposure at such a young age. So do you remember when you guys first started visiting national parks? Do you have a specific memory that might stand out or anything like that? Mm. If it makes you feel better, I actually don't. I don't have a very specific memory of first visiting national parks. So sometimes it just becomes the the fabric of your outdoor experiences. Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. I I love looking through old photos. My mom was a photographer as well, and um, I'll spend hours pouring over her old slides or photo albums that she made. And so I've, I've definitely pieced together a narrative of what growing up in national parks looks like. Um, and, and one of my favorite images is I'm a, I'm a small baby still. Um, and I'm on my mom's back and we're, we're rounding this sort of rock edge just as you approach delicate arch and arches national park. Um, and it's, it's winter. We're the only people anywhere around. Um, and it was probably, you know, 1986 or seven. So national parks looked a little different then as well. But uh, I love that image. I just love the the solitude. I love seeing where she took me as a baby um, and these places that I was exploring before I really even knew what they were about. And then um, I think, you know, in my own actual memory, one story that I definitely remember is my we're in the Tetons and um I refused to get out of the car and see Jenny Lake. This was in my like one little sassy period of being a teenager. <laughs> and my mom has never let it go. Um but I I wouldn't get out of the car and, and go see Jenny Lake and um and we had an incredible trip the rest of that time at Glacier National Park. We were there as well in that trip and um, I, there's photos of me, um, probably 15 standing among bear grass as tall as I am with my camera around me. I was, I was already falling in love with photography at that point. And, um, national parks were an incredible way for me to start really getting into photography, really starting to explore storytelling, the relationship that I was developing with the outdoors even if I didn't get out of the car that one time, <laughs> uh, I know it was all still really making an impact on me at that point. So you very remember, or you remember very clearly these early experiences, but when did you start transitioning into professionally writing stories and taking pictures in the national parks? Writing is, has been more recent. I've always loved writing. Um, and I, I would do it. I remember writing about national parks. Actually, I was thinking back to a, 
I had an old typewriter in high school, my grandfather's. And I remember typing up a story about uh, a hike that my mom and I did in Yellowstone, probably when I was also around 15, it might've been that same trip, um, about the, the lodgepole pines smacking against each other and the sound that made and seeing fresh bear sign on the trail and just sort of this visceral feeling that we had being out um, on the trail that day. And um, so I, I know that I've been writing about it for a long time and I've been photographing for even longer. I got my first camera when I was was 12 from my grandfather and one of his old film cameras. And so it's been a long time, but professionally, um, you know, with photography, I started selling my work in high school, but I don't think that counts. So it's been a, a really probably where it's been the bulk of my income has been in the last three years or so. Yeah, because I think what some people don't realize is that in today's day and age where so many people can take pictures and so many people can write for free, it takes a while to build up a portfolio in which that's the only thing that you're doing. So it's interesting that you say, you know, your experiences started in high school, but, you know, it takes a long time to evolve. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've always sort of walked this line again since high school of, you know, figuring out if I was going to be a scientist or if I was going to be a storyteller. And it's only recently that I've, uh, particularly with the support of the community surrounding National Geographic, where those two things merge very heavily, um, have really accepted that it's okay to be both and found ways to make that work. And so, you know, when I was in college, when I was in graduate school, I was in the sciences and I worked in the sciences after finishing graduate school for, for three years at the University of Washington. I still work with that team part-time. So if you want to call me a part-time scientist or, or whatever, but um, I, it, what that meant is that I wasn't always leaning on writing or storytelling photography as my primary income. Um, but I know in retrospect that all of that experience has really been my way to become a more effective storyteller in the types of stories that I want to to share either through writing or photography to have that that understanding that basis in science really impacts the way that I um, observe and interact and engage and tell tell those stories um, and so that's sort of been partly why too it, it always it, well I don't think any of us have a particularly linear path um, anymore but um, you know where I might make some money here and there from writing or photography, but, uh, but yeah, really just in the last few years where it's been a concerted effort to have that be the full-time work. Yeah. And speaking of how you have a different perspective and things like that, I mean, you can tell infinite numbers of stories about the national parks, you know, there, it's impossible to tell all of them just because the system is so vast and, you know, you could tell an infinite amount of stories just about Yellowstone or just about Yosemite or just about the dry tortugas. So given that, what kinds of stories have you published from the national parks? You know, what is your lens? Yeah, I, I love that. I do find that Yellowstone pops up in almost all of my stories in one way or another. Um, I think what I notice, I, I have written things that are more prose about experiences in parks, but I think what I certainly noticed looking back through my work is that it it always is engaging 
that connection between science and the parks. And I think that's such an interesting component of the parks and history uh, and a setting for researchers to do work and to understand these ecosystems. Um, And the evolution of that across time is very interesting to me as well, which, you know, may be a reason that Yellowstone comes up so much because it was being the first national park, of course, sort of the the place that we were testing all of this out and and figuring out, you know, how are we going to manage wildlife? What do we think is appropriate? What is the biology of these species? How does that, you know, lend its hand and how we end up managing them? Um, And so I, I find that I'm always really intrigued by those connections between parks and researchers um, and how that ends up influencing management practices. Um, And it, it doesn't always have to be professional researchers either. I also love writing about citizen science. I think citizen science is a hugely important facet, um, of getting people engaged in our parks, engaged in the scientific process. Um, I think it's a huge benefit to researchers who can't collect all this data on their own. Um, And and one of the first stories I think I actually published about a national park was in 2016, um, the National Geographic and um, NPS Centennial Collaboration for the BioBlitzes and all of the parks. And I was covering... Um, a story in Olympic National Park for one of Geographic's blogs. And um, so that was really the highlight on citizen science and getting communities um, around Washington, but particularly around the Olympic Peninsula, out participating in citizen science um, and engaging with their national parks that way. And so, yeah, I think sort of running the spectrum of of how to engage in, in these spaces through science, whether that you know, mean you're a seven-year-old kid who lives nearby but maybe hasn't been in the park or whether that's your profession and you've been working in conjunction with the NPS for, you know, 20 years on this. I, I'm always fascinated by those interactions. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. 
It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. So do you have a particular story that you have told that stands out in your memory? Yeah, I think I published a piece last year about the uh, mountain goat removal for um, an Olympic National Park. And it was a really interesting story for me because it was not, it was more journalistic in its style and that I was sort of reporting as, you know, that whole process was unfolding and the decision had just been made, the EIS was approved. Um, And so I was sort of talking about current events, but it was written in the context much more broadly, historically, of wildlife management in national parks. And I had done a lot of research for that, different books, different articles, a lot of different interviews um, that was just so fascinating to me to try to weave together the history of, of how we have decided to manage wildlife in parks. And I think particularly, um, I'm, I, my work as a photographer, as a storyteller, as a scientist is all focused on human animal relationships Mm -hmm. Um, and the bonds we form with animals, but also as a scientist, my specialty is what we call eco health or one health, which is the health and disease interface of people, animals, and the environment. Um, and so I'm, always interested in in the those relationships that people form with with wildlife and other animals and so to see that story unfold here in terms of people's connections to these goats emotionally or or feeling that they're a part of the landscape um and watching that dynamic uh unfold of that conversation here all the different voices coming together, um, people who don't want helicopters in because it's wilderness or people who don't want, you know, lethal removal of the goats or people who are just, you know, gung-ho to have this all happen and the sooner the better, who are sort of taking, you know, a broader scale of this ecosystem. But just sort of, I'm so intrigued by that. And so to, to have done all of that research, looking back at how we've had this conversation throughout history over the past hundred years and um, how it's evolved and how it's continually evolving. Um, you know, it was just a really important story for me because I think it, it's one, it's just fascinating to see goats being carried out in helicopters. Um, but, you know, more so within the context of what that means, how we decide to intervene um, when we decide to intervene, all of those things, I think that was just something that I learned so much from and, and really enriched my understanding of national parks writing that story. Yeah, and you said that was an Olympic national park? Yeah, so that is, um, it's currently underway. The first goats were removed last year. It'll, it'll continue until every goat has been removed um, first by helicopter non-lethally and then we'll proceed to a lethal removal phase until all the goats from um, Olympic National Park and the surrounding wilderness areas are gone and so they're doing it in the summers but it it involves you know a lot of different groups coming together but last year was the first year that that 
um, was was going underway. So you publish, you know, a lot of multimedia pieces, and they're not all about national parks. So for you, because you've done a lot on both sides, what's different about reporting on national parks versus the other nature, science, and outdoor stories that you do? I think, well, for one, sort of what we talked about a little bit already was I think that connection with science um, is historically a lot stronger and a lot more visible within the national parks. And because that is something that I'm interested in, I think that I can really explore that more writing about national parks because that relationship, um, both past and present between, uh, you know, biologists and, and other scientists is there within the park system quite a bit. Um, and that, that science informs how we manage and that extends out to, to other areas as well. So the other thing that I have really discovered when I'm writing about national parks is that I, I feel writing about national parks, I think is often uh, a heightened sense of responsibility for how I portray the park, for how I portray the people that I am writing about within the park, um, how I, the language I use um, in terms of things like leave no trace ethics, how we engage with the landscape, the wildlife, because I know that those are the most visited protected places that we have. And and not to say that I don't take those things into account uh, when I'm writing about, you know, nature or science stories that, that aren't in national parks. Um, but I really do feel that, you know, we, I think it's incredible that we have so many people visiting parks these days and experiencing, you know, such an incredible part of, of our landscape and these, uh, these protected public lands. Um, but that also does come with the responsibility of how do we talk about ensuring that they um, stay healthy and intact for future generations to be there um, with that, with this new um, amount of visitation in some of these areas. And so I think I'm also just really trying to ensure when I'm writing about national parks that I'm adding in, even if the story isn't necessarily about that, um, then I'm, I'm adding in just some of that language throughout, um, so that people are, I'm, I'm touching base with those aspects of being responsible stewards of, of our natural lands as well. You mentioned this additional feeling of responsibility and like we've talked about, you're an explorer, you're, you're a communicator, you're a scientist. So how has all this professional work change the way that you actually experience the parks, especially if you're there and you're not on assignment? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think uh, going back to, to what I said too about the mountain goat story, I think it's just given me being able to write about and photograph these places professionally has given me such a richer understanding of of what's happening in national parks, the issues facing national parks, um, particularly in places that I might not see it sort of in my own areas that I'm I'm working in all the time, like in Washington. Um, so I'm I'm learning more about issues facing national parks 
um, across the country, but you know, ac- across the world too, in some cases, and understanding more about you know the roles and, and responsibilities and feelings of people who are working in these parks, whether they're rangers or communications officers or um, biologists collaborating with the parks. Um, I think it's really helped me better understand. Um, all of those different pieces and um, and really sort of put what I'm seeing in front of me today into historical context and sort of take a, a broader view of the park. And for me, um, you know, the more that I, I know about something, the just the deeper that love is for that, that place. Um, I think that really heightens my appreciation and my understanding of being in those places. So it's not just um, it's not just walking through and and appreciating the beauty, which I certainly do. But for me, it's it's much more important now to to be able to put some of those things in context, uh, or to be able to understand things. Um, you know, if I if I do see a goat in Olympic National Park, or if I see um, buffalo grass in the Southwest, or if I see you know any of these things that are you know non-native species, but that might look nice in, in that environment, like goats do, it, it's helpful for me to have the context of that history and know the, uh, both sort of ecologically, but as well as within the park management, how these decisions are being made and why, um, because it's, it's not made lightly by any means whatsoever. It's years and years of deliberation. And so to be able to research and photograph these places just just helps me appreciate them more when I am there, whether or not I'm on assignment. Yeah, I absolutely know what you mean. Well, we will continue to follow your adventures and maybe someday you can write a quick dispatch for the National Parks Traveler uh, readers as well as listeners. So I just want to thank you so much. And if uh, our listeners do want to follow you, what's the best way to do that? The best way to follow me is probably through Instagram. Uh, my my handle is Jemina Rose, G-E-M-I-N-A-R-O-S-E. Um, or my website, www.jeminagarlandlewis.com. Great. Well, I just want to thank you so much for being here and talking to us about your unique experience with the National Parks. Thank you so much, Erica, and thank you to National Parks travelers, readers, and podcast listeners. Uh, I enjoyed talking with you guys today. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy inspires people to support projects and programs that preserve Yosemite National Park and enrich the visitor experience. The Conservancy funds transformative work throughout the park. The grant's donors' support help protect diverse wildlife and plant species and restore the precious habitats they depend on. Grants also support improvements to miles of trails to ensure visitors can safely access Yosemite's wonders. 
Visit YosemiteConservancy.org to find more inspiration. I came across an unusual site this past week, a national park campground that had vacant spots in mid-July. True, this wasn't in Yellowstone or Yosemite or Glacier National Parks. It was the Scudic Woods Campground at Acadia National Park in Maine. There, among the pines and cool ocean breezes, were more than a few campsites waiting vacantly. It's a glorious setting for a campsite, too. Not far from the Atlantic Ocean or Frenchman Bay, a short drive from the nonprofit Scudic Institute that not only conducts research important to Acadia National Park, but helps train tomorrow's scientists and with some easy hikes and countless tide pools nearby to explore. For those weary of dealing with crowds, vehicle congestion, and standing in line, the Scudic Woods Campground and Scudic Peninsula are precious treasures in the national park system. They're uncrowded, clean, refreshing, and relaxing. This is the other, quieter side of the national park system. There are a few out there. There's Cataloochee Valley in Great Smoky Mountains National Park in North Carolina, Cathedral Valley in Capitol Reef National Park in Utah, the Juniper Campground at Theodore Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota, possibly the Lizard Creek Campground at Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming, and the Butte Lake Campground at Lassen Volcanic National Park in Northern California. With the crowds that have been flooding the national park system in recent years, you have to be a bit creative, definitely flexible, and look beyond the name brand destinations in the parks. That doesn't mean you have to sacrifice your summer vacation for a lesser destination. Sitting on the rocky coast of the Scudic Peninsula this past week, I had this setting to myself. Well, myself except for some herring gulls that were snagging crabs from tide pools, hauling them 20 or 30 feet into the sky, and then dropping them to let the rocks crack the shells open for a tasty meal. Offshore, colorful buoys bobbing on the water's surface marked lobster pots, and whale-watching or puffin tour boats were cutting wakes through Frenchman Bay. With low tide in place, open-air aquariums made out of rock and sand and swaying with seaweeds are entertaining coastal features. Most have crabs of varying sizes, some have anemones, and all have some types of snails and even mussels. Scudic is an overlooked aspect of Acadia National Park. You can see it when you stand atop Cadillac Mountain and look east across Frenchman Bay but to reach it requires a drive of about an hour or so. That drive alone seems to keep people from making the drive. Even Samuel Champlain, who named Mount Desert Island back in 1604 when he sailed past it, considered Scudic too insignificant to visit. Though Acadia joined the national park system in 1916 under the name Sordomont's National Monument and was renamed Lafayette National Monument in 1929, it took another decade of work by George Doerr and his allies to gain acres of the Scudic Peninsula for the National Park. Alan K. Workman's wonderful book, Scudic Point, History on the Edge of Acadia National Park, is a great resource if you're seeking background on this heavily forested slice of Acadia. What is there to do at Scudic? The camping in Scudic Woods is peaceful. There are hiking trails that wind through the peninsula. At low tide, the tide pools with their marine life are fascinating. And you can even try catching your dinner from Frenchman Bay. They say that mackerel can sometimes be hooked by anglers from Fraser Point from mid-July through September. I, sadly, 
did not come prepared for that opportunity. Check out the Skudik Institute's website, that's skudikinstitute.org, for public events. They host programs and outings, such as looking for puffins on Pettit Manon Island and art classes focused on coastal landscapes and structures. They have civilian science courses, too, that you can sign up for. Though my visit came in mid-July, the air was on the cool side. Cool, certainly, when compared to Cape Cod, Cape Hatteras, or Cape Lookout National Seashores. And the humidity was nothing when matched against that of Florida. Crowds are not likely to decline across the national park system in coming years. But with some planning and thinking a bit outside of the box, you can still find solitude and beauty without having to hoist a pack on your back and hike 10 miles into the backcountry. Although, that's not a terrible option either. From Acadia National Park and Skudik Peninsula, this is Kurt Rappenchek. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Visit Flagstaff, Arizona and look about, and you'll find four national monuments that offer cool ponderosa pine forests, a sample of ancient life, and volcanism. Threaded together over a long weekend, these four national monuments will provide you with a deeper understanding of some of the cultural and geologic mysteries of the Southwest. Last week, we took a look at Woodpocky National Monument and Sunset Crater Volcano National Monument. Today, we're going to take a look at Walnut Canyon National Monument to the east of Flagstaff and Montezuma Castle National Monument to the south. Let's start with Walnut Canyon National Monument. Just 10 minutes outside of Flagstaff, on a densely forested plateau, the serpentine chasms of Walnut Canyon long ago gave refuge to hundreds of Native Americans. But once the Transcontinental Railroad reached northern Arizona, Walnut Canyon became a popular tourist spot, and in order to protect it from overuse, a section of the canyon was set aside with a declaration from President Woodrow Wilson on November 30, 1915. Autumn mornings can be cool here at over 6,600 feet in elevation, but by afternoon, the sun has warmed the limestone and sandstone walls and canyons, making it perfect for a walk. This area was occupied from approximately 1,100 to 1,250 by the Sanagua people, who were experts in growing crops and living in an arid environment. There are nearly 400 species of plants that they relied upon in Walnut Canyon, including the Arizona black walnut and prickly pear cactus. The rims high overhead are forested with ponderosa pine and gamble oak, along with pinion and jupiter. 
Along the trails the Park Service has developed here, it's a simple matter to imagine life in these canyons. Hauling water from the creek down below, tending fields on the rim high overhead, and sheltering from cold winds inside the stone rooms of the cliff dwellings. Since the dwellings were built under limestone overhangs, there are no roof beams, and they were also constructed with a front stone porch. Inside the visitor center, a ceiling-to-floor glass wall lets you gaze down into the 400-foot-deep canyon. Inside the visitor center, you'll find artifacts ranging from hunting points, matate grinding stones, and even items affected by the nearby eruptions from Sunset Crater. You can walk the seven-tenths of a mile rim trail with its sprawling views into the canyons, or head down the mile-long island trail loop, which is much more strenuous. The paved loop trail drops 185 feet, with more than 240 steps, but it's worth the effort. You'll pass more than 25 cliff dwellings, with a steep climb to come back up to the rim. In late fall and winter, this trail is sometimes closed due to snow and ice. From Walnut Canyon, head back towards Flagstaff and then go south to Montezuma Castle National Monument. The first thing you need to realize when you get to the National Monument is that Montezuma never made it this far north. But that didn't keep 19th century settlers from naming this spectacular cliff dwelling after the Aztec leader. An hour south of Flagstaff, Montezuma Castle National Monument was designated on December 8, 1906, by President Theodore Roosevelt. The main dwelling rises five stories, tucked nicely within an alcove 50 feet above the valley floor. The southern Sanagua people, who lived in this towering residence from about 1125 to 1400, chose their location wisely. They had protection from the elements. The south-facing dwelling was warmed in winter by the sun and the height provided a great perspective for them to look out across the surrounding landscape for invaders. A nearby creek provided water for their crops. A short sidewalk leads you from the visitor center to some nice vantage points of the castle, which probably housed about 35 people. Take a seat on a bench for a few minutes and ponder the craftsmanship of the Sanagua people who built this 20-room dwelling so high off the valley floor. During my visit, I met National Park Service volunteer Judith Beery. She told me that this area was pretty heavily populated with lots of dwelling spaces. She added that the area in and around today's National Monument was a melting pot of sorts roughly 1,000 years ago. There were hunter-gatherers, migratory cultures, and farmers, she told me. Ten miles to the north of Montezuma Castle, a deep spring named Montezuma Well is part of the monument and was well used by the Native Americans. At Montezuma Well, a few cliff dwellings can be seen just beneath the rim that rises above and encircles a massive pool of water, and some pueblos existed above the rim. More dwelling spaces can be found inside the rim down near the water. One, the Swalet Cave Ruin, is a rock shelter that had nine rooms. The farmers who lived here from roughly 900 to about 1400 made great use of the water source, which puts out an estimated one and a half million gallons of water a day. From a small drain across from the Swalet Ruin, water courses underground for a short distance before feeding a tributary of the Verde River. From there, a system of irrigation ditches channeled the water to crops. Nearly two miles of canals have been identified. Take a walk down to the water and then head over to the drain, but don't miss your own photograph of a photo studio's advertisement that was painted onto the rock face here back in 1896. These four national monuments, Wapatki, Sunset Crater Volcano, 
Walnut Canyon and Montezuma Castle make for a history-rich weekend exploration of the landscape around Flagstaff. And by heading out on the road in the fall, you're likely to escape the crowds found here during the hotter summer months. For a longer excursion, explore the San Francisco peaks just west of these four monuments, or venture to the Meteor Crater Natural Landmark about 37 miles east of Flagstaff. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. You can send comments and suggestions for future episodes to news at nationalparkstraveler.org. And to catch up on the latest National Park news, check us out at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.